You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. Wasn't that wonderful? Oh, that's some good worship. Woo! Yes. I love that song, that last song there. What a Savior. What is this, Suzanne? <laughs> Whoop! Ah, there we go. She wanted to respond. Yeah, let's get excited about the Lord this morning. Amen? I know we're a Baptist church, guys, but come on. Come on! We can praise Him, yeah? Now, that was some good... I, it was a privilege to worship with you guys just now and to look around and see everybody just engaged in, in giving praise to the Lord. Um, can you guys hear me okay? Is my mic good? Okay. Just making sure. Well, how are you this morning? Good morning. Yes, good morning. Better than I deserve. I like that. Well, it's, it's, it's great to be with you this morning. I want to ask you to turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This is now our fourth week. In John chapter 4, which is just packed full of wonderful truths for us. And you know, I pray that it blessed and, and challenged you as much as it's blessed and challenged me. Um, now, this morning, we're going to finish up the chapter, hopefully. <laughs> Did somebody just say yes? We're going to hopefully finish up here. Um, and, and I want to begin just by reading, actually. So if you'll stand with me as we read God's Word. We're going to read verses 43 through 54. Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee, where Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Galilee, into, out of Judea into Galilee. Let's pray. God, uh, as we come to you this morning, um, Lord, I just ask that your word would speak, Father, not that I would speak, but that that you would speak, Lord, um, through your word to your people. Father, if there's one here that that doesn't know you as Savior, Father, please let today be the day. Please bring them to salvation today, Father. Please convict them of sin today, Father. Please convince them of your majesty, Lord, today, Father. And Lord, I just ask that you would move every distraction out of the way as we open your word, and that you would be glorified uh, through this time. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You can have a seat. Well, um, if you've been following along with us in our study through John, um, 
You'll remember that Jesus at the beginning of chapter 4, He was on His way back home to His home region of Galilee after having spent some time in Jerusalem. But along the way, He he decides to travel through Samaria. And He encounters this woman at the well whom we've been discussing for the past three weeks. And He reveals to her, of all people, this woman, this Samaritan, this outcast, this very sinful woman, And that's why she was an outcast more than likely. He reveals to her, of all people, the fact that he is the Messiah, that both Israel and Samaria would have expected uh, was coming someday. And because of that encounter, the woman then goes back to her town. Uh, She tells the men of the town, the whole town comes out, and that ultimately leads to the conversion of nearly the whole town to be followers of Christ. Um, Jesus, as far as we know, worked no miracles in, the town, uh, in, in that town of Samaria, uh, Sakar. And, and yet the people believed Him. He worked no miracles, yet the people believed Him and they put their trust in Him. Now, for the Jew, the Samaritans would have probably been the last people on earth to be saved. Anyone but them, God. That was, that was the Jewish mindset. Save anybody, but not the Samaritans. We hate them, right? We've talked about this. And yet those are the people uh, that Jesus decides to save. Um, Those are the people that Jesus decides to go to. Uh, Those are the people that Jesus decides to save. And, And in verse 32, that section ends with this wonderful title, Christ is the Savior of the world. Now that was huge, right? Not just the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world. And so, after this little divine detour through Samaria, Jesus continues on into Galilee, uh, where we find this account that we just read in chapter 4 of Jesus healing the nobleman's son. Uh, this story is a fairly straightforward one. It doesn't require a huge deal of explanation, a huge deal of background information. Um, but as I read it, I, I see really uh, two main purposes that I'd like, I'd like to share with you. This morning, two main purposes um, of this passage. Remember, as we've said several times already in this study, uh, probably we'll say several more times, that John has a primary purpose for writing his gospel, and he gives that primary purpose in John chapter 20, verse 31, which will show on the screen here. Uh, This has kind of been our theme verse, right, for John. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. See, John wants to convince us by his gospel that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, which is to say God Himself, that Jesus is God Himself, because He knows that that the only way in which we are going to have true life is going to be through the name of Jesus. Can I get an amen on that one? It's the, only, it's the only way, guys, that we will have true life. It's through the name of Jesus. And John knows this. And, and so he's writing to convince us of who Jesus is. And so I think that's the primary purpose of this passage, is to show Jesus as the great physician. We've got a lot of healthcare workers that, 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 that are here, right? We have doctors here. We have med students. We have nurses and, and all this. Uh, but Jesus is the great physician. You see, He never fails in His healing. We're limited in our scope, right? We're limited in what we can do. But John is pointing out that Jesus is the great physician, the one who has all power over all disease and all sickness. And in showing that, John is showing Jesus' deity, which He's already demonstrated brilliantly in these first four chapters at several points in these chapters. So I want to look at that, that point for, for just a few minutes. It's so easy for us, guys. It's so easy for us to just read this and think, oh yeah, Jesus working another miracle. Yeah, yeah, yeah Jesus here. He's, uh, he's, uh, yeah, he's healing this man's son that was about to die. It's just, you know, whatever, another day in the life. It's Jesus, right? No big deal. And then we go back, we leave here, And then we go back to living our unempowered, timid, anxiety-filled, worry-filled lives. 
It's so easy for Jesus' power to have no effect on our lives. And I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about the Christians in the room. It's so easy for Jesus' power to have no effect on our lives. Don't do that this morning. Don't do that as we read this this morning. Understand, this is an eyewitness account from a man who walked with Jesus and was scorned because he walked with Jesus, persecuted because he wrote things like this and walked with Jesus, suffered deeply for his convictions about Jesus, was banished to an island because of what he believed about Jesus. He received no honor, no wealth, no influence for writing this. There's no agenda here, guys. I'm, I, I'm, always, I'm always perplexed by those who would say the apostles just made this stuff up. They just made this stuff up? Are you kidding me? That had to be the dumbest thing on earth in the history of the world to ever do. Yeah? I'm going to make up these stories for which I know that I will die for. That's a crazy person. And we should not be following them if they're crazy people. But I don't think they are. The testimony of Scripture is consistent. From every author, written in every language, on every continent, the, the testimony is consistent from these guys. They're not crazy people. They're writing what they saw with their own two eyes. This is a real story. Don't leave here today and not let this story and Jesus' power be real to you, real in your life. When we read this incredible miracle, it should be as if we were there witnessing it with John and marveling with John about Jesus. Because we have this sure, sure, sure word of Scripture. Amen? We have a sure word from Scripture. Now then, this is the second major miracle out of, um, out of eight that we're going to see in John's gospel. Um, this was, or the first rather, was, was uh, changing water into wine. We saw that in chapter 2. At the wedding in, in Cana, now Jesus is back in Cana of Galilee, uh, performing another incredible miracle. Now these aren't the only miracles Jesus, um, Jesus performed. In fact, John says later in his gospel, if we put everything Jesus did Uh, The the world would not have enough room to contain the books that we wrote them in. That's how many miracles Jesus did. So these aren't the only ones he did, but this is one of the eight that John decides to give us some detail about, and there's usually a reason for that. Um, Jesus is is in Cana, and, and this nobleman comes to him and says, My son is going to die. And we'll get into the meat of that in, in, in just a few minutes. But for now, I just want to focus on the miracle itself, the power of Jesus itself. Uh, Jesus, after, after some back and forth, tells the man, go, your son lives. A nobleman gets back. Uh, he's almost home. His servants come out to meet him and says, they say, your son lives. Uh, he tells him exactly when it was, and he finds out that it was exactly the same time that Jesus said it would be. That Jesus said that he lives. Three things I want us to, to just marvel together with. Uh, marvel about together um, uh, with this miracle. First of all, Jesus' power over disease. Okay? Now this boy is apparently so sick that he is, he's at the point of death. Now we aren't told much more than that, uh, anything more than that, but the only thing more severe than the brink of death is death, Right? So he's here, he's here on the brink of death. He's about to die. By the way, Jesus will demonstrate later his power over death, right? So that ain't a thing for him either. Um, but here, this boy is, on, is at the brink of death. He's as sick as you could be. And Jesus says a sentence. Jesus thinks a thought. I don't know exactly how this works. Jesus thinks a thought, and, and boom, he's, he lives. He's fine. The fever left him. This could only be done by the power that comes from the creator of this world. The creator of the human body uh, with all of its intricacies, right? That's the only way, guys. And so he heals 
And it's not a problem for Jesus. There's no challenge here. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I, I believe Jesus still has that same power today. Do you? I think He still has that same power today no matter the disease, no matter the stage of that disease. And, and you know, we can pray, we can pray uh, for healing with confidence, knowing that He can absolutely heal. Also knowing that God knows what's best. And so He may choose not to. But we can pray with confidence that God can heal anything. And that He knows what's best for us and for His own glory. Secondly, I want you to notice how long it takes Jesus. He apparently had this conversation at the seventh hour. And the boy was healed at the seventh hour. Not only can he heal, he can heal immediately. Immediately. Guys, there is no challenge for the God that we serve. There is no challenge. Nothing is challenging for him. That is the God you serve this morning. Thirdly, I want you to notice that distance is not even a thing for Jesus. It's no obstacle. He's about 20 miles away from this boy. That's about Capernaum, where, where Capernaum was. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. He, could have, he could have been all the way across the world, or he could have been right in the room with him. It doesn't matter for Jesus. Because, of course, Jesus is omnipresent. He is God Himself. He is everywhere all at once. And so distance is not a deal. It's it's not a thing for him. So before we go any further and miss the main point here, I'd like for you to just think about this God that you you serve this morning. We're not here worshiping some God that was made with human hands. We're not worshiping some God who has no power. The invitation is, This morning is not to come and be religious with us. I don't care about religion. It's not to come be religious with us. No, we are here because this God named Jesus has all power, all authority. He is sovereign over all things. And He's the one who said He's paid our debt so that we can have intimacy with Him. And if Christ has saved you this morning, then you have this same power living within you through the Holy Spirit. Amen? You have the same power that raised Jesus from there. You have the, the same power that 20 miles away says, go, your son's healed. And he's healed. That same power is, is in you. Now, don't let that go to your head. It's about him, not you. I want to be clear about that. It's not about us this morning, amen? Boy, it couldn't be further than about us this morning. If, it's about, if your Christianity is about you, you've totally missed the point of it. You've totally missed the point. It's about Him and His power, but my goodness, He, he puts His power within us. He lives within us. What an amazing thing, guys. So I think that's the primary purpose of this miracle Recorded by John, Jesus is the healer because Jesus is God. Now, I do think there's a second purpose for us this morning. That's where I want to spend the rest of our time. Um, I think the Holy Spirit in this passage is once again trying to show us what it means to truly believe in Christ. Okay, this is not the first time we've seen this in John, nor will it be the last. This is kind of the theme of John. So this isn't the last I'm going to talk about this. John's deal seems to be um, that he doesn't want us to fool ourselves into thinking that we're really following Jesus when in fact we're not following Jesus. He doesn't want you to be fooled this morning. In fact, uh, John also writes the book of 1 John, right? 
And, and that focuses on the same issue. How do I know that I'm really saved? If you want assurance of your salvation, go read 1 John. Okay, how do I know? How do I know what are the indicators that should be in my life uh, to know that I am saved? Not things that save me, but the things that should be in my life to know that I am saved. So this is this is a passion for, for John the Apostle. But more importantly, this is what the Holy Spirit wanted John to write to us. He wanted us to have this gospel that would show us the difference between true belief and some sort of something else. So I, I worship Jesus, but kind of only when I feel like it, kind of only when it's convenient for me. I'm going to say I worship Jesus, but I mean, to be honest, He's not my Lord. That's what I'm talking about. That's a whole different ballgame, guys. That's not salvation. That's not true saving faith. John uses the Greek word for believe almost a hundred times in, in this gospel. It's highly important to him that we know the difference between, between true saving belief and false belief. I said in chapter 2, uh, when we were back in chapter 2, that there is a belief in Jesus that does, not be, that does not lead to salvation. And some of you are like, whoa, what are you, whoa. I don't like that. <laughs> There's belief in Jesus that does not result in salvation. And it's that kind of belief that Jesus says in chapter 2 that many of the Jews in Jerusalem had. They believed because they saw the miracles which He performed. John says they believed in Him for His miracles. But Jesus did not believe in them. Jesus did not entrust Himself to them because He knew what was inside. He knew their hearts. He knew their motive. He knew they weren't trying to follow Jesus. That old saying, seeing is believing. You know that saying, seeing is believing. Well, not when it comes to faith in Christ, apparently. Seeing is seeing, and believing is believing. You know, sometimes we think, well, if I just saw, if I just saw God work a miracle, I'd believe. And sometimes people say, say things like that when you're witnessing to them, right? Well, if he just proved himself to me, show me a miracle. No you, no, you would not. No, you would not believe. I know that because of what happened in the first century, guys. Jesus is performing miracle after miracle after miracle and after miracle. And yeah, they believed in the miracles, but they did not believe in Jesus. Now in chapter 4, we, we find the same thing being said about these people of Galilee. Verse 44 says that Jesus testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, Galilee is Jesus' home. That's where he's from. Nazareth was located in the region of Galilee. So when Jesus says this, he's talking about his home. And he says, I have no honor here. This is consistent with the other three Gospels, right? This is said in every Gospel. Jesus says that about his home. They, they, they don't believe in me. I have no honor there. So this is consistent, the consistent testimony of the four uh, gospel writers. Um, but then, so, so he says, he says um, let me just read it. I can't follow my notes. <laughs> So he says, for Jesus himself, this is verse 44, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. But then in the next verse, he says, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Isn't that kind of contradictory? That's strange. Jesus says they don't receive him. And then John turns around and says they do receive him. So what's going on? Again, what Jesus is talking about is true belief not superficial belief. In the very next statement, John says they received him. What's his explanation for it? He says they received him having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. They believed him having seen the miracles. And so they were receiving Jesus because of the miracles they saw Him perform, and nothing else. Because who doesn't like Santa Claus? 
Right? Is there, is there ever a bad word said about him? No, but Jesus gets a lot of bad rap, doesn't he? Who doesn't like Santa? Like, I mean, you just wake up and, and there's, there's presents. I didn't have to do anything. It's just there. Unless you got coal. Right? Unless you were bad, apparently. Uh, you know, you, you, you don't have to do anything with Santa. There's no requirement. Who doesn't like the idea of this entity or this God who gives you all that you desire but requires nothing from you? No obedience, no loyalty. But see, that's not who Jesus is. And what we see in this story is a contrast um, to this superficial, non-saving belief that, that most of the men and women from Jesus' hometown had. And the contrast is this nobleman introduced in, in verse 46. And from his example, um, I think we see three points about, about true saving belief in Christ. And, you know, these aren't going to be new things to you. They're not going to be earth-shattering things to you. But, boy, they are very important. And the first thing that we see from this man is humble desperation. Humble desperation. You know, we sing this song a lot. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. I call it the theme song of Risen Life because we sing it every couple weeks, right, Drew? I mean, we, we sing it a lot. We like that song here. Because Stephen and Drew and I, we hope that that will be the true cry of our hearts. I hope those aren't just words to us. But that that's how we live every day. Lord, I need you. More of Jesus, less of me. This man's a nobleman. That means he was uh, more than likely a royal officer who probably served under King Herod Antipas, who was the, the quote-unquote king of the region, although all of his power is given by the Romans, right? So he pretty much does what the Romans say. But he, he's, he's technically uh, the, the quote-unquote king of the region. He has authority uh, somewhat in that region. But the point is that this man, this nobleman, was a man of influence and likely a man of wealth. And yet he's at a point in his life where he is absolutely desperate. He's desperate. All the money and influence in the world doesn't keep a man from tragedy. Boy, tragedy strikes every one of us, doesn't it? Doesn't matter how rich you are. Doesn't matter what kind of influence you have. Tragedy is going to strike, guys. It's a part of life. And it strikes this guy, and he's desperate. His son is dying. I think if my son were dying, how desperate I would be. Oh, I can't imagine what, what this man must be thinking. He's desperate. Look, Jesus saved my son. Please. So he's heard of Jesus. I don't know how he heard of Jesus, but he's heard of Jesus. And he comes looking for Jesus. Now, um, obviously, this would be a dangerous career move for him. If you remember, the father of the king at this time, Herod Antipas, the father of him, Herod the Great, he was the guy that had all of the kids in Bethlehem two years and under killed when Jesus was born. Why? Because he was threatened by this new king of the Jews, as the wise men said, right? He's the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews has been born. And so uh, he was threatened, and so he had all the kids. All of, can you imagine living at that time in that area? All of the children, two years and, and younger, dead. It brings me to, just to tears just thinking about that. So this is his son who's in charge here. Obviously, he's not going to be a big fan of Jesus. He's going to be threatened by Jesus. So for the royal official to come to Jesus took a lot of faith in and of itself. It also took a lot of humility, and so he lowers himself, humbles himself, and he comes to Jesus saying, Jesus, heal my son I don't know what else to do, but I believe you have the answer. 
It says that he implored Jesus to do something, which indicates his, his persistence. He was persistent in this. Lord, please heal my son. He threw away his own status, his own importance. That was pretty much in the garbage. I don't, I don't know that he lost his job or anything, but he certainly could have. He threw away everything, and he humbled himself. Because when you're on the brink of disaster, suddenly your priorities change. When you're facing death, or the death of a loved one, suddenly eternity matters, doesn't it? It matters for everybody. Even the world. Even the world, all of a sudden when the celebrity dies, oh, eternity matters now. And yet he's shining down on us. Never professed Jesus. In fact, denied Jesus. But yeah, he's up there looking down on us. See, eternity matters to everyone at the time of crisis. With zero exception. And so here he is. He's in tragedy and he comes to Jesus. And we've said this many times, but the first step in true belief is humility, guys. It's humility. It's also the first, that's the first step in almost anything with Jesus. You want to be a leader? Boy, we better humble ourselves. We better humble ourselves. You're going to be one terrible leader in the church. It's all about Him, guys. It's understanding that we can do nothing. Salvation is totally in the hands of Christ, and we are desperate for that salvation. We're desperate for Him. Now, compare the noblemen with the other Galileans, the ones that had the false faith, and just believed in the miracles. Many of them, I, I imagine, had this idea, you know, Jesus is one of us. He's from our hometown. He's going to come, and He's going to do special stuff for us. And he did do the first miracle in, in Cana, right? And he does this one in Cana. Um, but I imagine they kind of had this superiority complex. And Jesus is from Nazareth. That's in Galilee. That's where I'm from. So, you know, whatever. But do you see the difference here? That's pride. That's entitlement. That's not real belief in Jesus. It's the thought that, that, that God owes me something. That kind of approach will never save. That kind of approach will never save. Genuine belief requires humble desperation at the feet of Christ. We're willing to forsake our own lives for the sake of following Him. That's genuine faith. Secondly, I want want you to see this guy's persistence. True belief persists. It perseveres. True belief passes the test. This is a weird encounter with Jesus. This man comes to Jesus begging for healing for his son. And what does Jesus say? He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. That's not what I expected to hear from Jesus. That's pretty off-putting by Jesus, in fact. And when you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus rarely gives the response that we might predict or the response that we might have. So what's going on, Jesus? What, what, what is Jesus doing here? I think, I think He's testing this man's faith. I think he's testing this man. Of course, he already knows the answer. Jesus knows the outcome of the test, right? But he's testing this man. All right, do you really believe in me, or is this just about miracles? Are you going to be put off if I don't tell you exactly what you want to hear? Of course, Jesus already knows the answer to these questions, but he's testing his persistence, he's testing that faith. The Bible is clear that a true believer will persevere. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect every day. Don't get me wrong, you're not. You're going to sin. 
But ultimately, a true believer is going to persevere. In fact, in 1 John, John is talking about these false believers who had left the faith. And what does he say? He says, they went out from us because they were not of us. Because if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. That's how you know. They either persevere or they don't. If they don't, you know they weren't saved. It wasn't real to them. Because, see, you can fool me, but your perseverance can't fool God. Your perseverance will find you out. And I'm not going to make a judgment one way or the other on your soul. But God is. And you, we can't fool Him. And it's perseverance that He requires. It's perseverance uh, that He puts His Spirit within us that enables us to do that. If you don't have a spirit, of course you're not going to persevere in Jesus. You can maybe follow along for a while, but you're not sticking around. Not when tragedy strikes. Those people in 1 John, they failed the test. The test proved the illegitimacy of their faith. Now Peter, when he's writing... To persecuted believers, he says the opposite. He said, your, test, your, your, your faith was proven and refined by the fire because you've been through the persecution and you still persist in Jesus. Right, so we have both sides of the coin there. Jesus tests this nobleman's faith to see if he's going to persist, and he does. I, I, I think it's interesting how the man essentially just ignores the rebuke of Jesus. Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And, and he doesn't even respond to that. He just says, sir, come down before my child dies. Once again, showing, you know, I, I believe. I believe you, Jesus. This isn't just about miracles. Now, I want to apply that to us as Christians. Jesus certainly doesn't give the answer the man expects. I don't think he expected to be rebuked like that. And sometimes that's us in our prayer lives, right? Sometimes God gives us an answer that we don't expect. Or an answer that we don't agree with. An answer that, I, I wouldn't have done it this way, God. I've been desperately seeking you over this, and this is the answer you give me? That's not the answer I wanted you to give me. What is that thing right now for you that you're praying for, and, and to be honest, you're frustrated? You're frustrated in your prayers. Because you're not getting the answer that you had hoped for. You're not seeing the results that you had hoped for. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a lack of a relationship. Maybe it's an illness. A job. Whatever. You know. You know, don't you? You know what you're praying about. You know what you're frustrated with in your prayer life. If there is such a thing for you. Let me, just, let me just encourage you, don't give up. Don't, don't allow the answer that you don't understand to pull you away from the only one who can give you life. Persist. Push deeper into Christ. Persist. Persevere. You will see the fruit of that labor. I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying you're going to get the answer you want. But you will see the fruit of that faithfulness, that persistence. You, you will. Press on, guys. You know, rather than being like this nobleman, 
we tend to be much more like the rich young ruler. Remember him. He asked Jesus what he needed to, be, needed to do to be saved, and Jesus said, Jesus tests him. Sell everything and follow me. And the rich man, he, he was so easily put off. That was it for him. Oh, well, I'm not coming. And he, he went away sad immediately. He failed the test. His faith was not genuine. The crisis question so easily deterred him from his belief in Jesus. And sometimes so easily we can be deterred and we go chasing after other things because we're not getting the answer we want in our prayer lives, yeah? How easy is it for you? How hard is it to keep, how hard is it to, to deter you from that singular focus on Christ? I hope it's difficult. I hope it would take a lot for that to happen. Press on with Christ. Press on believing what He says. Press on in prayer and in study of the Word. Know that you will see the fruit of those labors. That sometimes, those labors sometimes seem empty and they seem mundane. But you keep praying. The whole of Scripture proclaims to us that God will reward persistence. He will reward perseverance. And thirdly and, and finally, I want us to see another aspect of this man's belief. Simple trust. Simple trust. Jesus replies to this man's persistence. He says, go your way. Your son lives. I just find Jesus' response is so interesting. It, I mean, it almost seems like disconnected. You know, I just go on. I've, I've healed him. It's strange. It's not what I would expect. But don't miss this next part. Jesus says that, and there's no rebuttal. There's no like, but Jesus, how am I going to know? Like, if how am I going to know if he's better or not? Like, where's the assurance of that? Show me the evidence, God. There's no questions asked. There's no rebuttal. It says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went home. Simple. Trust. He simply took Jesus at his word. Boy, that's not popular in 2020. He just, okay, I'm going home. <laughs> Jesus said he's healed, he's healed. I'm going home. And I think there's a good case to be made that this conversation with Jesus totally cured his anxieties about his son. Because when he meets his servants, notice it's the next day. I mean, it's a 25-mile walk. So, you know, maybe he was hurrying and just couldn't make it. But I think you could also argue that he was no longer in much of a hurry. It was, um, it was about the seventh hour the day before when the boy got better, and when Jesus and this man are having this conversation, that's about 1, 1 p.m. And so he apparently takes his time, doesn't make it home till the next day. He took Jesus at his word and considered it done. Okay, Jesus' word settled it for him. That's all I know, this guy truly believed. Jesus' word was, it, Jesus said it, it's done. As simple as that. Christians, if we could just get that. God, if we could just get this. Remember Jesus in, in Matthew 18 when he said, unless you become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about your maturity level. 
He's not talking about running around the church building like crazy and having to be wrangled, right? Not that kind of child. That's not, that's not the aspect of a child he's referring to, right? Not the immaturity. He's talking about the faith. The faith of a child. Children just hear and believe. Sometimes I can get them in trouble, right? It's a good thing when it comes to their parents. They just hear and they believe. If I tell Jonah that I'm that something's going to happen, he, he believes it's going to happen. There's no doubting. There's no show me the evidence, Dad. He trusts his daddy. And what his daddy says is gold to him. It's a big responsibility. But that's how it is with your children. They trust what you say is going to happen. This is the kind of faith that God requires if we're going to come to Him. Saving, saving faith is specifically putting that kind of absolute trust in Jesus' work on the cross that paid for my sins. Now that's not logical, guys. It's not logical that God became a man. That's not logical. Okay? Anyone that tells you that's logical, they're crazy. It's not. It's a miracle. It's not logical. The virgin birth is not logical. It's a miracle. It is supernatural. The fact that Jesus could literally become our sin on the cross and take our place, take our punishment. We have a hard time making that compute in our brains. It was a miraculous, supernatural thing that happened on the cross. And Jesus says, unless you believe, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe what the world calls foolishness, you will die in your sins. And if you didn't want God in this life, you don't have to have Him in eternity either. And you'll be eternally separated from Him. He requires that childlike faith. That doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that we believe Christianity based on no evidence. Guys, apologetics is important. And we stress that here. And we talk about that here. And there's so much evidence for the Christian faith. I mean, it's crazy how much evidence for the Christian faith. But at the end of the day, if I convince you intellectually, but you have not surrendered your life, I've done nothing. You're not saved. It's about surrender. Repentance of my sin and surrendering to Jesus. But you know, as Christians, um, we struggle with this idea of simple trust as well, don't we? <clears throat> If we would simply take Jesus at His word and obey Him, how much trouble could we be saved from in this life? How much despair would we eliminate from our lives? How much worry would be gone? Well, all of it. Right? Because He says, don't worry. It would all be gone. Let me ask you something. Is, is God's word more precious than gold to you. Is God's word more precious than gold to you? Psalm 119, verse 72, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of silver and gold. I think our, our kids worked on a verse last week that was in Psalm 19 that's very similar. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of silver and gold. Is that true in your life today? And I want to talk about that in two different aspects. Commandments and promises. Jesus gives both to this man. He says, he gives a commandment, go home. He gives a promise, your son lives. He gives both to this man, and this man obeys. But first, let's look at commandments 
and we've talked about this nearly every week in John, we'll probably still talk about it every week in John, if we love Jesus, we will keep His commandments. The Bible's clear about that. And, you know, the crux of the matter is this. God is not going to command you to do something that is not for your good 100%. He is not, I promise you, going to command you to do something that is not 100% for your good. Now, the world will tell you something different. Oh, you Christians, you're fun suckers. You guys don't have any fun. I don't want to come to Christ because that means I can't do these fun things that I want to do. Well, the world is foolish and doesn't believe. Well, and, and you know, we can't expect them to. God will never ask you to do something that's not completely for your good. Now, it may not feel good. That's a, there's a difference there. There's a difference between something being, being for your good and feeling good. Okay? It may go against your desires at the time. But we can trust that His Word is true and will bring us life. So when He commands to forgive, there should be no rebuttal from us. But God, you don't know what He did. Really? God doesn't know what He did. God didn't know that when He said this. God didn't know that when He said, bless your enemies. I think He did. You don't understand, God. You, just, you don't understand Okay, what then do we say about Jesus hanging on a cross with every inch of His body drenched in His own blood? And He looks down and He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. God doesn't understand. See, we may not love Jesus' commands at the time that they're challenging our own flesh and our own behaviors and desires, but do we trust that His Word is gold and mine is not? Do we trust that He has the real value here and I do not? Simple trust. Lord, I'm not sure I understand why this is in here. I'm not, I'm not sure if I have enough strength to obey, but God, please help me by Your Spirit. I want to obey You. Help me trust Your commands, Lord. Help me to get a different perspective on this, Lord. Because Your Word is true. And I know my desires will pull me away from You. Help me know Your Word is true. Secondly, Let's look at the promises of God. Because guys, if we would just simply trust the promises of God, we would never worry. You understand that the Bible disallows for worry. It's just not, it's inhibited by Jesus' promises. Deactivated, goodbye worry. The problem is not with His promise. The problem is with our obedience to His promises. And boy, I'm number one on this list. The cheapest of sinners with not just claiming the promises of God. We have such trouble trusting the promises of God. He says, I'm just going to list some for you. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you what? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's in Matthew 11. He says, come. And yet our first instinct is usually run. When tragedy strikes, when we're struggling, when, 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 you know, when you're going through day after day in your Bible study and just not getting anything out of it, just not meeting your felt needs, what's our first response? Close it up. Let's do something else. TV will probably give me what I'm looking for. How dumb are we? Good grief. Ugh. He says, come, and we want to run. What is your first instinct when you're overwhelmed? Is it to run to him and to learn from him like he said to do? Learn from me. Or is it to run to whatever else it is that you do to relax? Now, I'm not suggesting that any of those things are bad. That could be, depending on what it is. But I'm not suggesting that they are. Is your instinct when you're weary to press into the fellowship of the church or to just not show up for eight weeks? You know, because I'm, I'm weary and I just don't want to be there. I don't want to be around other people. What's your instinct? Is it to run or is it to come? Are we standing on this promise of Jesus? And first of all, do we believe it's true? Yeah, I suppose that's the first question. Secondly, if it's true, God, what else? Are we, what are we doing by not claiming it? By not standing firm on it? Let me give you another one. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12. Are you standing on this promise in your weakness? Are you allowing His grace into your life, Christian? If we aren't going to stand on this promise and proclaim it to Him, we're not going to find that grace anywhere else. It's only in Jesus. Some of you may need to be reminded of this one today. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's Hebrews 13.5. And you know, in that verse, God doubles down on what He's saying. The English is not good. The better translation, the Greek says, never, no, never, not ever will I leave you nor forsake you. He triples down on it. I'm not going, I'm, I'm not leaving you. Christian, I'm not leaving you. You're not lonely. You're never by yourself. Are you standing on that promise during your disappointment? During your loneliness? When you're very fearful. We know that all things work together for the good. For those who love God. Those who are the called, who are the called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 All means all. All things work together for your good, Christian. I feel like I say that one every week. But I mean, are we living it yet or not? <laughs> Are we believing it or is it just up here or is it down here too? That's the issue. We believe a lot of things in our heads that we don't allow to transform our lives. And that's the difference between true belief and false belief. Now, if, it, if the issue is salvation, that's a huge problem. Okay? But as Christians, even those that we know we're saved, we do this with the promises of God too. We have false belief about them often. And in doing that, we call God a liar. 
peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 14, 27. We have access to this peace. But are we claiming it? Are we standing on this promise? Remember that song, Standing on the Promises of God my Savior? You know that song? Old hymn. And we all sing it. Then we go home and we worry about everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh Lord, I'm standing on your promises. Right now I'm worshiping you. Guys, all I'm saying is there, there, it needs to carry over into your life. And I'm saying it to me too. It's not just you, it's me. The promises are there. All the promises you will ever need to have all the fulfillment and joy and peace you will ever need. But are we claiming it? Are we standing on His promises? Every promise for every trial of life. Might I suggest this week taking some time, maybe, maybe in your quiet time this week, just take some time to find some promises of God in Scripture and just write them down and just make a list and hang it on your dang wall. And when you're feeling worried every single day of your life, go to the promises! When you're worried about something, go to the promises. When you're feeling lonely, Stand on those promises. Proclaim, pray those promises to God. You think God's going to disagree with His own word? Of course not. Overwhelmed promises. It's on my wall. Seriously, do that. Especially if this is something you really, really struggle with. Which, if I were to guess, is every single one of us in this room then why haven't you written them down yet? You're going to write all of them down. There's too many. But find some and write them down and run to them. Nothing you will face. There's nothing you will face that the promises of God cannot carry you through. Nothing at all. The question is, are we simply going to take God at His word? Or are we not? This nobleman here, he did. And he experienced firsthand the physical healing of God for his son. But more importantly, he experienced the peace and salvation of Christ. And his whole family did. We can learn a lot, I think, from this simple little story. <clears throat> the healing and saving power of our God and the joys of, of, of following Him with a pure heart and what that means, what that looks like. Now, as we close, I want to give an opportunity for those who may have never trusted in Christ as your Savior. It's such a simple thing. You know, God's done all the work for us in Jesus. But it's not an easy thing. And it's not Santa Claus. Right? God does require belief. That's it. That's all He requires. No, nothing more, but nothing less. He requires true, genuine belief. Belief that says, I'm sorry, Jesus, for my sin that nailed you to that cross. And will you please forgive me? And I want to live for you. I want to give everything to you from this point forward. Guys, that is saving faith. That is salvation. If you truly mean that with a pure heart, those words mean nothing. If you need to do that this morning, please don't delay. Please don't leave here without making Jesus Savior of your life and Lord of your life.
And as we have a few moments of silence in a minute, pray those words to Jesus. Repentance and faith. For those that are following Christ. Well, we need to check our hearts this morning. Let's check our motives. And then let's begin to stand on the Word of God in our lives. Can we begin to just simply trust? Simply take God at His Word. Rather than just say we believe in the authority of God's Word, let's begin to live it this week, okay? Let's begin to live it if you're not doing that. Let's begin to trust His commands, claim His promises in our lives. I love that other old song, Trust and Obey. You know that one? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Trust His promises, obeying His commandments. God, as a Christian, there is no other way. There is no other way to experience those fruits of the Spirit. There's no other way to have that joy and that peace that we all so desperately want that we rob ourselves of because we don't trust and obey. Trust and obey. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. We're going to have just a few moments in, in silence for you to do what you need to do with Jesus. And uh, then I'm going to close this. We'll have a few announcements and then we'll go. Father, I, I just thank you for your word. Lord, help us not to forsake it this week. Rather, help us stand on its promises and trust you with those commands. God, it's so so wonderful to see so many children running around this morning. Um, what a joy. What a joy, Father. I pray that you would help us to become like them in our faith, Lord. And just simply trust, just simply take you at your word. Lord. Help me, Lord, through your Holy Spirit's power. God, as we go, give us boldness. Lord, help us to tell someone this week of this good news that we have in Jesus. We thank you for the visitors who have come this morning. We're so grateful for them, Father. God, we love you. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that you looked at us while we were sinners and you made a way to take that sin out of the way. I thank you, Jesus. We ask all these things in, in, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.